Alrighty guys, welcome back to Breaching Extinction. I'm super excited because we are getting our porpoisodes up and running again. So for those of you that have been following the podcast for a while, you may know that we had porpoisodes, which are shorter, kind of more fun episodes. Um, and we originally did those, Ellie Sawyer and I did. Um, but now I have two new co-hosts here who are going to be doing them with me. We do plan to release these on Mondays. Um, every other Monday, ideally, and it's just going to be focused on kind of Southern Resident news, any other important whale news, um, and then just other fun topics to kind of keep things a little bit more lighthearted since talking about an endangered species can be a little heavy sometimes. Um, so I'm going to let them go ahead and introduce themselves. Shelby, would you like to go first? Yeah, sure. So my name's Shelby. I'm currently just starting a PhD in epidemiology at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. And I've just been uh, super passionate about orcas since I was young and have enjoyed uh, learning about them growing up in all different ways through like the literature, documentaries, um, things like podcasts like this. Um, and I'm hoping one day to be able to use my knowledge in epidemiology to help support struggling populations like the Southern resident killer whales. So. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, we're super excited to have you here. Awesome. Liam, do you want to do your introduction? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm Liam Jusset and um, I have been I have I have uh, been shoot, what's the word I'm looking for? I've been I've been I've been supporting no not supporting. Uh, <laughs> I have been part of orca activism there we go for yeah. about a year for about a year now and um i have been doing it mostly through my instagram account and i've been i'm part of i'm part of the movement to uh to get rid of the uh, lower four snake river dams and um, i'm currently a high school student but i'm hoping as they move on into college i'm hoping to move to washington one day so i could probably help out and yeah awesome yes and um liam and shelby both have dogs too that may interpop the episodes as well so we'll see what happens (laughs) um but yeah so this week we're going to kind of just focus on talking about some different updates that have happened within the field things that are important um so shelby's gonna share with us some super positive news out of bc so i'll let her go ahead and get started with that Yeah, so um, for those of you who don't know, the Canadian federal government promised to ban open net uh, pen salmon farms by 2025 and move the entire industry as a whole towards a more sustainable model, um, which would be a closed containment systems. And I'll get into more of that in a minute. But um, Minister Bernadette Jordan um, in BC has decided to remove 19 open pen salmon farms from the Discovery Islands in BC by June 2022. So a little bit sooner than um, Canada's plans as a whole, which is awesome. And that kind of came from a movement from a whole bunch of people, but uh, BC First First Nations, sorry, commercial and sport fishing groups and ecotourism operators have been teaming up to demand uh, removal because um, these farms are just a major hazard to juvenile wild salmon and they interfere with these uh, young fishes migration to the ocean. Um, So it's really exciting that um, the minister has promised this 
And um, I found out about this again. I know I talked about this um, Instagram last time I was on, but Alex Martin for Salmon, who's a biologist, shared this on her Instagram. And she's actually uh, taking submissions for short two to three minute videos, or even if you just want to send a message, she's compiling something to send to the minister as a thank you for um, the minister like making this promise. So if anyone out there wants to contribute, I'm sure she'd really appreciate it. Um, but because of this, I thought I'd just give a little bit um, of background information on open pen salmon, salmon farms for those of you who don't know a lot about them. And I certainly learned a bit more myself uh, looking through this information. So um, what open pen salmon, salmon uh, farming is, is basically um, what kind of what you'd imagine, just big uh, open pens on the coastline. And uh, they rear the fish in these large cages that are suspended in the ocean. And so really the only barrier between the fish and the surrounding environment is just this net. So water flows, um, like natural ocean water flows in and out of the pen. And there's different types of pens based on their distance from the coast. Um, however, there are some issues uh, with these open pen farming, far, open pen salmon farms. Sorry, it's kind of a tongue twister. <laughs> so the um, some issues with the actual fish themselves in these pens is that you're housing a ton of fish in a relatively small amount of space. So there, it's pretty cramped conditions. And a lot of the times uh, the fish actually end up with warped skeletons because of this. And also just because of the conditions, they have generally poor health. And so they're an easy target for sea lice, uh, which they can then harbor in their pen and pass off to wild populations of salmon. Um, they also produce a ton of waste. So the waste comes from fish excrement uneaten food uh, from this group of salmon in the pen and also chemicals that are added, which includes anything from hormones, antibiotics, and also pigments. Mm -hmm. And all of this waste just builds up on the ocean floor and smothers like surrounding marine life, creates dead zones and also fouls our beaches and shores. So it affects us as well and surrounding wildlife. Um, a few studies have actually shown on the Eastern side of Canada that these uh, fish farms have, there's evidence that they've reduced lobster populations in bays where the farms were present and also um, have impacted seabirds as well, which is interesting. Um, another huge issue is that salmon, uh, if any issues happen with the net, their um, salmon escape and have escaped before. Um, so when these uh, farmed fish get into the open, their open ocean, they're competing with local populations for food. And again, like I mentioned earlier, can spread diseases and parasites. Um, actually, there was a big incident a couple years ago in Washington state. Um, one of the fish farms there had uh, damage occur and thousands of fish got out into the Atlantic or into the ecosystem there. And also, if these fish were to escape, they can also breed with um, local populations, which isn't good. And eventually they might outcompete the local populations. Um, some human effects for these 
fish farms is that the fish farmed in these pens aren't actually as nutritious as wild caught salmon Mm -hmm. because they're fed artificial high fat high protein diets um you can actually look it up and you can see visually the difference between um a farmed salmon and a wild caught salmon there's quite a color difference Mm -hmm. um fish farmed fish is a lot pinkier and fattier and the wild caught salmon will be a lot uh, more red and um, they also have uh, larger amounts of organic compounds called polychlorinated biophenols, which are PCBs. And uh, PCBs have been known to cause various cancers and also have other toxic effects on humans, so that's not good. Um, so when you're shopping for salmon, just a little note that I found is that um, if the salmon says fresh Atlantic salmon or farmed salmon. That both means that it came from open pen farm salmon. Um, it's only wild if it exclusively says wild salmon uh, on the packaging. Wow. And lastly, most importantly, why we're here um, impacts negative impacts for the whales, of course, especially the southern resident killer whales mm-hmm. who are endangered and also the northern resident killer whales who are um, threatened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these impact the whales um, because these farmed uh, salmon are a threat to the wild salmon, which of course we know the wild salmon is super important to the whales because they're their main food source. And we know that lack of food availability is one of the, if not the biggest threat uh, to the Southern resident killer whales. Um, So just, I'll just say a couple solutions Mm -hmm. for if we're going to take away these open uh, pen salmon farms, we we have to have a solution. So one option is offshore aquapods. So these are way more off the coast. And again, a pretty similar concept of just, you know, a spherical cage suspended in the ocean. Um, But the water has a bit more flow, so waste doesn't build up as much. Um, a little, so a little bit better, I guess. Um, and then another option is more land-based aquaculture. So, uh, you can, you know, have this in a land, any landlocked area, basically just a giant, um, aquarium, uh, and do your fish farming there. Um, it can be a bit more expensive and there's still obviously some animal welfare, welfare concerns of the damped conditions, but, um, that's another option as well um so yeah that's about um the information that i gathered um i did want to say that if you were interested in learning a bit more about salmon aquaculture i'd highly recommend you check out the documentary artificial um which patagonia produced and it's actually uh available free to stream on youtube which is awesome so i'm not sure if we are able to uh leave a link yeah anywhere but yeah we'll link all of like all the resources that you've used and that we talk about here we'll link in the description and then also if people want to find artificial it's posted on our website under learn more as well um and then we did do an episode with um josh murphy the producer of that um it's one of the earlier ones i will also link that in the description if people want to listen to what he has to say as well awesome perfect thank you yes that's yeah that's a lot of that's I'm, I'm glad we're getting rid of these um 
open net pens, but I mean, yeah, I see your, you know, we're talking about other solutions, but I mean, I think the best solution is habitat restoration and, um, you know, freeing, freeing dams, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause those are huge barriers to the salmon as well. Yes. Um, yeah, like let the environment reclaim itself. Like I think we've seen in COVID in a lot of ways that the environment's very resilient. And if we kind of let it do its thing and take the steps we need to, to restore it, that it can successfully come back. So, um, those are definitely, that's a, a step in the right direction for sure. Yes. Oh, I forgot to mention as well that, um, so basically in all of the West coast, uh, United States as well, there's, um, the open net pen farming has already been banned. Um, so it was banned, uh, Washington was the last state to ban it, um, which they did so in 2018. However, they're letting any current leases live their course before, um, they have to remove their pen. So the last pen in Washington, um, their lease is expiring in 2025 as well. So hopefully by 2025, the whole Western coast will be free of these open pen farms, which is awesome. That's amazing. Across us and canada yeah that's amazing um we love to hear that hopefully that is what happens and maybe we can try to help find other solutions so that it could happen a little bit faster too yes um excellent yeah so advocacy this just shows again like advocacy like the mp for bc has um taken the initiative to help move that along a little bit faster so i encourage anyone to um look at your local government for that as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely need more advocacy out there and raising more awareness, but that's a great example. We can totally learn from that and apply it to other things that we are trying to accomplish here in the US and then like on the Canadian side of things as well. Awesome, well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Liam, do you wanna tell us about one of the more recent studies that was published in regards to the Southern residents? Yeah, so um, Deborah Giles, who you might know as, I think, is she the founder of, or- is she the founder of um, Orca Wa- or Wild Orca? I, I believe so, yeah. She's like the lead scientist there as well. Yeah, she's so the lead scientist of uh, Orca Wild. And her recent study, which came out a little bit on January 21st, so mm-hmm. not, not too long ago, it was, it was earlier this month, uh, her recent um, report was to stu- was to study the the effects of um, mostly study the effect of the effects of vessels on the vessel distance uh, in relation to orca what their behavior what their behavior looks like when whenever they were uh, violating the uh, four hundred yard limit which if you don't know is you know if you're a recreational boater or even now i think for whale watching you have to keep a 400 yard distance and so they were measuring the effects that that people in rec- whether it be recreational or or commercial or i think may i think they did one for um for whale watching they were basically looking at the effects of that mm-hmm. and this wasn't the first this isn't the first time that they've done that in 2000 between 2003 and 5 i think there was another study done by these people who were measuring from i think it was the the island that famous spot where the lighthouse is that's often a popular Mine place. Kiln? yeah 
Yeah, lime kiln. They were uh, they were uh, measuring, I think, from lime from north, like where not lime kiln is to another place down south on the island. And um, but this but this time they were going to look at uh, the uh, the difference between the males and females, like how they would react uh, to the ve- to the uh, vessel to the, presence. Yeah, to the vessel presence, and as well as looking at their. Um, they're call, the way that they call, mm-hmm. like they're, the difference in how and how they talk to each other, and what they found was that females were far, far, far less likely to to be involved in foraging than uh, than males. Mm-hmm. Far, like far less, and like in two thousand in two thousand fourteen, uh, female uh, female or. Yeah, females uh, spent about four dives looking for uh, four dives looking for food. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever a boat was close, and males would would spend like ten, and so the vast and the vast majority of the time, whenever there was a boat nearby, they would always be surfacing. And when they looked at the um, when they looked at the sounds, like how how the uh, the orca would call to each other when vessels were near. They found that the frequency was a lot higher than normal, and that's there was uh, there was a lot more whistles and a lot more the higher frequency and clicks uh, whenever whenever they were whenever they were traveling whenever uh, boats were nearby, and that's not necessarily the first. And this kind of makes sense because a few year a few decades ago, um, scientists compared. Actually, they didn't test with uh, with gray whales to see the dis- uh, to see the difference in the calling, and they looked at recordings from I think the late 1950s to around to de- to basically the late 1980s or I think maybe the 2000s, some little bit hazy on when they did the test. Mm-hmm. But they found that there was a much there was a very very large difference. The whales were had a much higher frequency in uh, calling rather than you know when there was more boats rather than less boats. Right. And that's largely due to the fact that they can't hear each other over the sound. Because those, because as well as, because, uh, and the sound largely, and while it does, and while it does come from the engine, engines from boats, it also, it also, most of it comes from uh, the propellers themselves. It's a phenomenon called cavitation, which if you don't know, is when, when a propeller spins through water, it causes, the pressure around the blades to to basically decrease, which what ha- which what happens to matter whenever the, the the boiling point of matter changes depending on the atmospheric pressure. So because the pressure was lower around the blades, it causes it causes the water to boil and then form these bubbles of steam, which then pop and they make a lot of noise. All right, yeah, that. I didn't know about the propellers. Yeah. I knew about the engine sounds, but I did not know about the propellers. Yeah. So I mean, now to solve now to solve that, it's well. First of all, if you're a recreational boater, please respect the 400 yard limit. It's there for a reason. And if you can, always, always, if you want to look at the southern residents, if you if you can, please do it from land. Mm-hmm. That's always the best way to look at them. Absolutely. 
Yes. Um, yeah, that's a, a, a really interesting study. And um, I went back because that was kind of the episode that Shelby and I did. We discussed a study from 2009. And on this, like in that episode, I had quoted that, you know, this was one of the only studies that we had seen, but um, that was just an error in my search. And there are actually a lot more studies. I found one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine studies um, over the last two decades that have been looking at this and all kind of all consistently say the same thing that like, you know, distance and number of boats and all of these different things affect the whales. Um, that's interesting, though, that you bring up the sound as well. There's so much that we don't know still about sound. And um, one of my captains was telling me about a study with prairie dogs where um they were able to basically break down their sound. They tested it out by sending like different shapes or things like that by or different colors. And they found that like the prairie dogs actually had different words for like bird or human or like shapes or things like that. So who's to say the Southern residents don't have the same thing. Um, and in the episode that's coming out on Friday, I talk with Megan from Orca Lab and she had, it. you know, I don't want to give away too much, but um, the Northern residents have the same sort of um, behavior where they scream over the other boats or loudly vocalize. I don't know if scream is the right word. Yeah, yeah. in several st studies that I've looked at of, of the Southern residents, it had mentioned um, similar results in the Northern residents as well. Yeah, they, yeah, there was, in Deborah's report, she, uh, she briefly met, I, she mentions the uh, Northern residents and, and how they will often, whenever they forge, they'll try and forge as close as they can to the uh, surface around areas which are a bit more shallow because because uh, the larger the deeper they go the more pronounced the sound is uh, yeah um, yeah and and you know if you want a really extreme example of their of their reaction to very high or to mid frequency which is the kind of which is the kind of frequency that the u.s navy uses to do mapping and searching for enemy vessels right there's a video in 2003 of the uss shoop doing a mid-frequency sonar test within like less than a month maybe either about a mile around a mile away from uh j-pod mm -hmm. and it was so loud that you could even that you could even pick it up it wasn't just heard by microphones some people could reported that they heard it from the surface as well mm -hmm. and you wow. can tell that there are start that j-pod was really startled by it they had to surface very quickly because you know that's the only way that the sound can't travel as 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 far and as loudly yeah yeah and i i know very little about acoustics but i always um forget that basically the the whales are in a giant cave system basically or like if you picture mountains inverted that's what their underwater atmosphere is like so I believe there's like an echoing effect of that as well from sounds that are produced underwater and how that must affect them as well. Or, I mean, they're so much more sensitive to noise yeah. than, than we are, so. I mean, they eco-locate and then also, you know, sound travels faster underwater than it does in air. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that adds to it as well. Um, definitely send us that video, Liam, because we'll we'll put it in the description here so that people can click on it and watch it if they want to. Um, yeah, so I mean, I like 
the whole whale watching and like vessel noise and things like that, like that keeps coming up and it is something that's important. And, you know, Shelby and I talked about it a bit and like Cole and I talked about it in one of the more recent episodes. Um, but, you know, at this point with how dire the situation is with the Southern residents, you know, we really need to weigh out if it's worth it to spend time around them. And I know there's so many people in the whale watching community that love these whales and we all do. Um, and everybody wants to protect them. And they argue that like these centennial effects, which is like basically other boaters see them and behave and like, yeah, sometimes that works, but yeah, it also like doesn't either. And there's no scientific evidence to show that being a thing. So until then, I think it's better to proceed with caution, you know, and, just given that there's so few individuals left, it's probably not worth it to, to be around them in boats. Yeah. I mean, this, the study that, that Deborah did, it was all from, it was all from land, which, I mean, they were probably, she, uh, she, her team was probably t able to get more accurate results since than the uh, one from, from 2003, 2004 and 2005, you know, partly from, technological advancements yeah anytime anytime they're doing those acoustic um like anytime they're they're uh they're uh recording recording the effects of uh, acoustics on southern residents they're always doing it from land and it's almost always visual you know so i mean they will put in they will put down hydrophones of course but they will you know use tags as well but yeah all from almost entirely from land nice yeah, that definitely makes a huge difference because, you know, if we're studying the effects of vessel noise in the water, having a vessel right on top of the whales is not going to be conducive mm -hmm. to getting accurate information. Um, yeah. Um, and do you mind um, telling us the title and the other authors on that study? Because we did say it was Giles, but there were lots of other people there, too. So I want to make sure that yes, they're mentioned was, as well. Uh, yes, it was Deborah Giles. Then there was Marla Holt, Jennifer uh, Tennyson, Eric Ward. Uh, Bradley Hansen, Candace Emmons, and Jeffrey Ho Hogan. Excellent. And the yes, title of that study? They all played huge roles in that. Nice. Um, and what was the name of it? Uh, effects of Vessel Distance and Sex on Behavior of Endangered Killer Whales. Excellent. Which, when I first read that, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. But when, I, but when you check, when you see that it's just, they mean the gender of the whales, it's like, the difference between the gender of the whales it's like oh okay yes yes that's yeah um awesome i do just want to clarify that study though they did go out in boats and tag the whales yes they did yeah they did okay. they did use they the they went out in boats yeah to do the tagging yeah okay and then we're yeah. on land after yeah on land after the tag thank you for clarifying shelby that could have been confusing yeah. <laughs> Cool. Awesome. Um, and then the third thing that we wanted to touch on is that um, there, and we saved it for last because it's like more positive thing, um, is that there was a new species of whale that was identified in the Gulf Coast of Mexico. So um, this was discovered by the researchers at NOAA. So uh, this whale or this group of whales was originally discovered in the 1990s. However, they thought that it was within the umbrella of a bride's whale. So um, 
they were studying it. They know that there's about um, like less than 100 left in the population. These guys are found in tropical to subtropical waters. They're non-migratory, so they kind of hang out on the same coast. Um, but there was a genetic study done in about 2005, so about 15 years ago, um, that took place where they um, found that there was some genetic variation between this whale and other bride's whales. So there was like a little bit of a hint that it was a different uh, species, but they couldn't confirm until they got um, some morphological data on it, which basically just means looking at the bone structure. So in 2019, a um, dead whale washed up off the southwest coast of Florida, and um, a lot of efforts were made by the stranding networks out there um, to preserve this dead whale for further study. Um, and there was a researcher, where's her name here? Her last name is Rosal, I wrote it down somewhere. Um, but she um, was able to look at this, she's like the main researcher that was on this, um, and she was able to look at it and found that the skull is different. Um, the top part of the skull has some bones that, are, that make it distinguishable. So they named this whale the Rice's whale after Daniel Rice, who was the first person to discover it. Um, so these guys are considered critically endangered because there are less than a hundred of them left. Um, if she, Rosal said in an NPR interview that these guys are pretty hard to study just because whales obviously are underneath the water, um, and they come up to breathe and they spend most of their time under the water. So it's been hard to study these guys. Um, and it's hard to know different things about these ones just because they're not migratory. So, um, that adds like a certain level of difficulty. Um, but she had mentioned that a lot of the same things that impact most whales impact these guys too. So oil spills, noise pollution, marine traffic are the biggest threats to this newly named population that is now considered endangered. Um, so the information that I got from this was mostly from an NPR interview. Um, I was able to access the paper. At first I wasn't because um, Wiley wanted to make me pay for it and it was expensive. So I did not, but then I got access to it. So we're, so I went through and read the introduction. It was interesting because there was another paper published, um, by Taylor Perrin in 2017, um, that was looking at the extent of cetacean fauna, um, and what we can conclude about them. And so basically he was looking at how many like species there are and theorized that 32% of them have a high likelihood of being underclassified um, because of the lack of accurate taxonomy, meaning we, like there's probably further discrepancies and they use the killer whales as an example of, you know, resident versus transient and all these different things. So um, the reason that we're not really able to collect the data on this and distinguish between all the probably bunch of different types of whales that are out there that we don't even know are different whales um, is because it's really hard to obtain skulls and tissue samples. So, um, and a lot of studies, they need a, a certain amount of tissue samples in order to get there. So that creates a barrier as well. So the inadequate number of samples as well as the ge geographic sampling, um, tends to be a little bit widely distributed, so that can um, make it difficult. And then oftentimes the whales are elusive or in remote locations that are difficult to sample. So um, those can kind of get in the way. And of course there's legal protections as well. So like you can't just like go out and kill a whale for its skeleton. And I don't think most scientists want to do that anyways. Um, 
But yeah, so this is, you know, adding to our knowledge of whales. Um, it is sad to, to hear that these whales are likely endangered, but there is a new species of whale. It's called the Rice's whale. So we'll link the NPR um, interview as well as the paper in the description of this episode. And something else I want to mention is that a lot of that is the case, you know, as you pointed out with the difficulty of studying the whales uh, just because of their elusiveness, that's, you know, that's the case with any kind of study, study and the, uh, the report that Deborah Giles did, she makes very clear at the beginning that it's hard to do this. It's hard to, um, it's hard to make predictions about, well, it's hard to make accurate, um, like, it's hard, it's hard to make uh, some, some of the models and some of the conclusions because a lot of the time that a lot of the time that uh, the whales are often not visible. So they, they make use so they make use of a lot of uh, Markov models, which are uh, models that predict future events based on uh, past, <clears throat> past actions and past uh, data. Yeah. It's hard as well having such a small sample size, like even stuff being the southern residents, like they only tagged a small handful of whales and it's hard, but that's the consequence of trying to study like endangered populations or populations where there's only a few, there's only a few numbers available. Yes. Um, I'm curious what, so I know the tagging, like the last whale that they tagged was I believe in 2009 and it's like the only, one of the only animals that like has been like conclusively died based on the tagging. And so they stopped tagging the Southern residents. So this is the, in the first study where they've been tagged. Was it like a, do we know if it was a suction cup tag or, um, if yeah. It, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, or, yeah, it was, it, they used, they used new tags that, you know, that kind of just suctioned onto the, uh, onto the blubber, that sort of thing. Onto yeah. Their- they fall, they fall off on their own in a certain amount of time. Like okay. I, I can't remember if I wrote it down or not, but it was within the day. Okay. Um, yeah. So thanks. it gives them data until it falls off. Gotcha. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, it was definitely the old, the older ones. They would actually like stab into the well and it, and they gave Nigel, the, uh, Nigel that infection which kills him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, he was. We don't know. He's the last whale that was tagged uh, with, that way. Yes. Which, yeah, usually the tagging is safe and like that I don't think is like a discrepancy upon, I mean, like I'm sure mistakes were made, but like nothing's ever going to be done perfectly. So like things happen, you know, and it's unfortunate that it was like an endangered whale, but I I just say that because I don't want somebody to go get angry with like Noah or whoever tagged the whale because, you know, they probably did their best. Um, And that was like the unfortunate consequence which I think when I was like reading about it, there had been like hundreds of other taggings and this was the first one. It just happened to be a Southern resident. Um, so no, yeah, Noah had a pot, uh, has a policy where if something like that happens, it's, it causes an immediate termination of a, of a program or a procedure. Yeah. Or which, no fishery, I should say more yeah. specific. Which makes sense. So, um, I'm glad to see that they found safer ways to to tag the Southern residents when they need to get certain data. Um, Awesome. And I think they're like, we were just going to talk about the um, most recent Southern resident killer whale sighting, at least from the center for whale research side of things. So on January 20th, um, as of right now, which is January 31st, this is the most recent um, sighting that we've heard about. So there were 
several research boats out on the water. Um, Dave from the Center for Whale Research got a text from a woman by the name of Shan Kogan, or I'm sorry, Shan Jane. My handwriting is awful. Um, and I'm not sure what her role is. I didn't see that on the Center for Whale Research's website, but she had reported hearing J-Pod on the hydrophone. Um, and at the time that she was texting him, he got a phone call from another scientist named John Durbin, who's over at, um, C, which is an institution that does some other sort of research out there. I actually hadn't heard of them before looking at this, um, who had reported being with the K's, um, or a couple of the K's, at least K39. Um, and they did see a couple K's and a couple J's. So they saw throughout the day, throughout the encounters, there were two boats that went out. One of the things to note right now too, is that, um, their U.S. boats can't go over to the Canadian side because of COVID. So it sounds like this is also research boats as well. So um, this is data that they were able to collect from the American side. But I know that in total they saw J27, J39, J31, J56, J46, um, J26, J45. And then the encounter with the Ks. Um, where is it here? They saw, I'm trying to find it. So sorry, my notes are a hot mess. Um, I know they saw K34 and K20, K27, and then K44. And then um, they did also see J41, J49, J40, J37. Um, and then J35 was seen with her calf. So that's pretty exciting too. So Whoa. the young Yay. ones have been seen healthy, it looks like. Um, and it sounds like several of the whales, um, they all seem to be kind of, some of them came together, some of them dispersed throughout different parts of the area, but um, a lot of them were seen um, fishing for salmon and they did see some successful attempts at fishing salmon. So um, the whales have been seen in the San Juans, which is very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And then... And hopefully nice, quiet conditions for hunting yes hopefully yeah. nice quiet, yes, conditions. quiet conditions for sure i'm sure it's for still sure. pretty quiet out there because it's january and like who wants to be on a boat in washington in january <laughs> um yeah i mean i think my biggest my biggest concern is just with with when the navy will start doing their weapons testing did that go through because i i don't yeah it did it yeah. did yeah, what in november in November, NOAA Fisheries approved the United States Navy to do it. They said they gave them the, the go-ahead. Oh, my God. How yeah, did I miss that? Jesus. That was the... Uh, well, I don't know how many listeners actually follow my Instagram thing, but the whole reason why I was doing the putting out the stories of those ships and why I think they will probably use them the upcoming uh, test is because they could probably be used like so the shoot which the uss shoot which was the uss shoot might make an appearance again might make another appearance in the sailor sea and might do another sonar test oh my god i, w I wish they were at least if they were going to do it that they would you know allow like a certain period of time and track the residents and do it you know at a, an opportunistic time when they weren't, you know, in the area or something, but I know oh that's a far reach of logistics. Oh, but. When I looked at, when I looked at it, the thing, the Navy was one, when I think somebody brought up the Southern residents to them and they're like, oh yeah, we're aware of what's going on. So we'll, 
we'll, we'll take extra precautions not you know to make sure that it doesn't happen but the navy you know is not you know based because based on what i've seen their behavior around other um around other animals well yeah based on their uh, past behaviors i don't know how well they're gonna really uh obliged to that and even if they even if they are going to even if they somehow don't affect the southern residents they are going to affect hundreds of thousands of marine mammals all across yeah. the coast oh yeah. my god yeah so <laughs> actually yeah just wow was it, was it talked about yeah i think it was i think you talked a little bit about it on your show i think i did and then when i was taking a break i kind of like completely disconnected from the internet altogether and i think that's how i missed that yeah um but i definitely think that we should dive into that like in depth in another episode yeah so or yeah so and we have just the person for it yeah because liam already did all the work amazing okay yeah so um yeah so if you don't know back in i think it was july when they made well i was it was either june or july the United States Navy, the Pacific Fleet, came, uh, came to NOAA and said, "Hey, listen, we want to do, uh, we want to do a whole bunch of new weapons testing on, you know, on the West Coast, and this time we want to do it, you know, we want to do it very close, very close to the, uh, to uh, to the coast, very close to the uh, to land, and initially they got a little bit of blow, and well." Actually, yeah. So, so what they proposed was that they would do, you know, electronic, you know, electronic warfare, uh, some some weapons testing. I've got a list of it here somewhere, yes. but they wanted to do a whole bunch of these weapons testing and like, you know, tool testing all all around um, all around marine mammals, and they asked for class a and class b incidental takings of almost three hundred thousand marine mammals and an incidental taking a class b incidental taking means that they the navy's authorized to to disturb or 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 disturb or maybe slightly injure um marine mammals a certain amount of marine mammals and a class a taking means to either to either severely injure a marine mammal or kill marine mammals, a certain amount okay. of uh, marine mammals. And there was a little bit of of resistance. Like, I think Governor Inslee spoke out on it, but in November, the, the decision was, um, uh, but Noah said, well, yeah, there was, yeah, Noah said that they they give the no they think about it for a couple months and in November the final decision was that okay yeah we'll allow you to do this so for the next and the proposal was for seven years so for the next seven years unless there's some kind of uh, unless there's some kind of you know you know uproar about it that all of a sudden pops up the navy all along the west coast including the Salish Sea and even in Puget Sound are going to do a whole bunch of weapons testing right on top of marine mammals. Okay. Yeah. And and what what struck me about it was that you see the Navy has um the Navy actually has you know certain testing uh, places where the Navy's supposed to go to do their weapons testing that are usually far out in the ocean that don't, you know, 
they have these ranges right. that are away from everybody, away, away from all these marine mammals, and they can, you know, do their testing out there. And so, really, it's really odd that they've decided to to do this, ignore those ranges now, because usually they get in some level of trouble if, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily severe, but they are usually required to just stay in those ranges. So I don't know what's made them think about. Doing uh, this. Yeah. Doing I think this. we yeah. should do an entirely different episode dedicated to this because it's highly complex and I definitely think we should get into it and that people would be interested. Um, yeah, so maybe we'll I've put a pin that. in it right now because um, I think people get like the gist of kind of what it looks like. Um, but you guys could definitely look forward to that soon. I know we're trying to keep these like shorter episodes right now. We're, um, going a little bit over, but that's okay. Cause I love hearing and talking to the both of you. Um, do you guys have any final thoughts or any last minute things? I know Liam, you wanted to bring up one specific whale. Do you want to talk about her? One specific Star? whale. Yes. Right. My my mind, hold on, My I think my mind's blanking on Her it. Her name's Star, right? Oh, yes, yes, Star. Oh, I just wanted to, I just, you know, so if you don't know, uh, Star is heavily pregnant, and she's part, and she's, I think, part of L-Pod, or is she part of, no, she's part of J-Pod, I think, let me mm-hmm. double check, but yeah, Star's, Star's one of three um, southern residents that were found in in september to be pregnant you know there's telequa with with uh with phoenix and uh there was who was the other mother it was telequa and there was another orca who gave birth to crescent yes i'm blanking oh yeah eclipse eclipse yeah yeah Yeah, eclipse eclipse was the one who 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 had her who had crescent and yeah so star is let me hold on let me double check which uh which pod she's part of. Yeah, so she's part of J-Pod. So so I'm hoping for, I'd say we're all, we're all hoping for a successful birth, number one, in J-Pod. But number two, we're hoping that that Star's baby and that Crescent is female. Because we, we, because we got a glimpse um, that, we got a glimpse of, uh, J, of uh, Phoenix, I think last year, of him playing with uh, Talequa and... And it turned out that he was a boy, so we're hoping that uh, that these two orca are girls yes. because mm-hmm. that's the most important. We, there needs to be fertile females in the southern resident orca population. Yes, and like Beyonce says, "Who run the world, girls?" Girls, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> not for scientific reasons, but because Beyonce. Says. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Awesome, Shelby. Do you have any last thoughts? Not particularly. I think um, everything I had here was covered, and I want to leave it on a nice positive note with yes. babies. Yes. Babies. Babies. Yes. Yay. Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, you can look forward to these every other Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, and they will ideally be shorter, but we kind of knew the first one would be a little longer. So thanks for hanging in there. Um, but, yeah, so bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye.